Uh, good evening. General Richard Mulcahy died last week. He had lived a long and full life, a life which reflected the story of the modern movement for national, political and cultural independence, from the days of the volunteers in the IRB to the Doyle and party politics and the administration of government departments. He was a soldier and one of the makers of our Irish state. To talk about Mulcahy's place in modern Irish history, we have with us in the studios this evening two men who knew him well, Professor Michael Hayes and Hernan de Blythe, and they will be joined by Lone O'Brien, Brian Farrell and Johnny Murphy in the Cork studio. But first, from our sound archives, the voice of Richard Mulcahy, first speaking in Irish to a teacher's meeting while he was Minister for Education. Uh. Anna has his father, Agadana Vishnach, Arm, Treshvahegesh, the Christian, the two to me, because I'm kind to dinner when I had wedded. Ta Alani, the Tishkind, on kind to dinner when I Ach, ni eating, ach, Mishnach, hurt us on kind to dinner. The Kurvalon Kestina, our Fragarium. Agus Werkes Ledier ni Horms de Kirvia. Ach ta Sulegum gemeg Tachlichelemarsa im Blienschikui. Agus Beder um Dillen a Bliene gemach Fragre er land as ne Kestin a son. Ach Tokfenare scha ni ga gach Kest de Beder a Kur de Ragger. <laughs> and now recalling his first meeting with W.T. Cosgrave in 1917. Naturally, on the journey, we talked very much about the raising. And I was interested to detect a note in Mr. Cosgrove's talk, as if he had something on his mind about the raising, something on his conscience. I. It probably took me some time, even after, to realize that it wasn't any difficulty about whether he should have been in the rising or whether they should have been rising, but that his difficulty rose out of the fact that his young stepbrother was killed in the rising. That he might have regarded himself as an influence in having the boy in the rising. And that thought and the distress occasioned to the family by the boy's death, and particularly to the mother, I think preyed on his mind very much at that particular time. I had reason to realize afterwards that that was a symptom of his sympathetic nature, his understanding, his humanity, and his love of family and life and people. The voice of Richard Mulcahy. Now, Michael Hayes, I think you knew Richard Mulcahy for a very, very long time. And I think it would be useful in setting, as it were, the scene, if you were perhaps to tell us something of your early impressions of him in the national movement and his role in it at the time. Well, my first impression of my first meeting with him had nothing to do with the national movement. I was lecturing in French at University College 
and he came with medical students. He became a medical student in 1917 after the rising. And he came with two or three other medical students who wanted a French class. His interests were very wide. He had already learned Irish very well, and he was able well afterwards to read French, so that his, his reading and his mind went far outside military matters. He learned Irish the right way. That is to say, he went to the same place all the time. Where was that? In to, to Balangiri. Oh, yeah. And he took one speaker, an old woman called Siobhan Thagast, from whom he collected a great, great deal of Irish, and from whom he wrote down some folk tales. And he was very att- attracted to the traditional matters, but he was also very up-to-date because he's the first person who recorded a folktale on a netophone uh, machine. So in a sense he came then to the national movement, not just in a political way, no. but also in terms of the cultural movement, uh, the whole uh, Gaelic revival. He Would you see him in that way, Hernán de Blyde? Well, I m- met him really as a minister. I yes. scarcely knew him before that. And the, one of the things that impressed me most was the stand he took at the time that the British were evacuating the Limerick barracks. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were going to be taken over by anti-treaty forces and all the ministers were prepared to fight in the first instance. Griffith, in fact, stood up for the first time that I ever knew and made a speech and said we should fight and that the National Army should occupy the barracks. Collins, who had been insulted very much in Cork in the cemetery just before that and was <coughs> feeling sore, agreed with Griffith. And for a moment or two, it looked as if the civil war would start then, early in the spring. But Mulcahy alone stood out against fighting. He said that the National Army had not yet got the discipline or the spirit to take undertake such a task. And he put his case so strongly that very shortly Collins agreed with him. And the start of the Civil War was postponed for several months. Well, now, Michael Hayes, I think Hernán de Bly there has struck, I think, a very important note, this element of realism in the makeup of Dick Mulcahy. Now, say from the 1916 period onwards, uh, say from Ashburn onwards, would you think that he was, in a sense, more the soldier or more the makings of the statesman? Well, he he was both a good soldier in his circumstances and a good statesman because he displayed the qualities of a statesman in government and he was Minister of Local Government in 27 and he was Minister of Education twice afterwards in 48 Mm -hmm. and in 54. And a good parliamentarian is a man who's able to put a bill through the doil or through any particular Mm -hmm. parliament section by section. He had that capacity. That is to say, he was accurate, he worked hard, and he was able to handle other people. He, um, even in Ashburn, Ashburn was the only place in which there were, there was open country, open fighting in the country during the Easter week. And he is alleged to have been in charge of it, although he always gave the credit to Thomas Ashe and to the men of Fingal, particularly the lawlesses. But they themselves always argued that it was Mulcahy who was the person who originated that mo- that, that uh, particular fight. And it was on that particular model 
that the fighting took place afterwards in 20 and 21 when he was in charge of it. But he was always firm in his mind, of course. Mm-hmm. He never, never, never hesitated at all. Well, Lona Brain, of course, an interesting thing about uh, Dick Mulcahy was not merely had he these talents, you know, in cultural matters, indeed, uh, right through his life, he stressed this, as we know, but he also came from uh, perhaps an unusual background, some might say, for revolutionary, uh, from the public service. Perhaps you disagree with that, of course. Well, uh, Dick Mulcahy's career uh, began where mine ended. In the post he, office? He, he was in the post office, in uh, Clark and the engineering branch, up to 1916. And it gave me great pleasure a few years ago to bring him and his old boss together. Well, the boss, if I may call him, call him that, was an Englishman in charge of the Dublin Engineering District in 1916. One of Mulcahy's jobs in that branch was to issue passes to the engineers and engineering workmen, and he signed these with his own name on behalf of the branch. It's rather amusing that while he was engaged in the, in the rising, these passes, passes were enabling post office personnel to pass unimpeded through the British lines. When he was, um, when he was parting with the... Uh, with the English boss on Easter Saturday, I think, or perhaps Good Friday, he left the impression on him that he was going on a weekend retreat. So the boss told me. Uh, I often thought afterwards it was a very long and very unusual retreat. <laughs> actually, actually, <laughs> yes, he, actually, he was going on a retreat on that particular occasion. Was Good. And Sean McDermott intervened and prevented them, sent him on the other end and told him to put all the telephones out of action. But for various reasons, he wasn't able to do that. Well, Brian Farrell, you may perhaps, as a younger man, uh, see Dick Mulcahy in a different perspective. How do you see him uh, as his contribution uh, to the making of the modern Irish state? Well, I think he belongs to that great generation of the men who made Ireland, uh, and he was unlucky in a sense because he was a survivor. The men who made Ireland and died in the early stages were comfortably buried and their reputations were fixed and firm. They were young and if they made mistakes, these mistakes are forgiven to the young. Those who survived and contributed as he did, those who served as he did, of course left themselves open. They left themselves open to criticism because they did things. And of course the thing that strikes me most about Mulcahy is that he was above everything else, I think, a doer He wasn't a a great man for image building. If you think in terms of modern politics, he was a bad modern politician because he wasn't very self-interested. In fact, I think of that sort of phrase that Yeats used about Thomas Davis, this man so empty of peacock talent, this man who put money in no man's pocket. I think that's the sort of epitaph that I would pin on Mulcahy. Well, how do you feel about that, John A. Murphy? Well, it was comparatively late in my life that I came to know, um, came to be in a position to assess Richard Mulcahy's contribution to the Irish nation because I grew up in a, in a, an atmosphere of, let us say, in an anti-treaty household where names like Collins and Mulcahy and Cosgrave weren't very well favoured. Um, I met him only once. I just would like to refer to that because uh, he, he made quite an impression upon me. Um, Professor Michael Hayes, who was with you up there in Dublin, was present on that occasion. But I remember him admitting me and um, bouncing, is the only word I can use, bouncing up the stairs, and this was only four or five years ago. I'd come to him for information about material for a Thomas Davis lecture. And um, 
I then got the impression of an extremely um, disciplined, uh, not to say austere personality. And I think, I of course speak from personal ignorance, perhaps Mike de Hayes would like to correct me here, but I think as a revolutionary he belonged to that type of dedicated, disciplined, rather aloof uh, type of which indeed revolutions are made of, um, which can be seen in so many revolutions, uh, and uh, on, the, on his opponent's side uh, as well as on his own. Um, I also think that, uh, though Michael Hayes has said he was m as, as much a statesman as, as a soldier, I, I do think the evidence overwhelmingly underlines that the military role, uh, his, his role as <coughs> chief of staff minister of defence and so on, was, was his principal role. As Brian Farrell has said, he was a, a bad politician. His seesaw electoral career uh, in and out of office, in and out of the Doyle, um, uh, underlines that very much. Um, m my overall <coughs> impression, of course, is yes, that he was one of the great pantheon. He, uh, he did live on, perhaps, he didn't have a young, comfortable burial, well, I don't think that by living on, uh, he in any way reduced his stature. Michael Hayes, would you like to come back on yes, a number I would. of those points? I would. I quite agree. He was a strong-minded man, but he was also very generous. He, I would agree that he was, he looked austere at certain moments, and he had the capacity to be aloof when he liked. For, for an example, if he wanted to talk to people, he did. But if he didn't, mm. he didn't. He just sat silent. And it was, of course, a very uh, embarrassing experience for the people to whom he wanted to talk, because uh, it was remarked, you see. It was said to me one evening when I came in at 10 o'clock at night from the door or half past 10, I'm here since 8 o'clock and this man never spoke to me. On the other hand, he spoke to all kinds of people and was very good. I wouldn't quite agree with, with uh, Professor Murphy. I think he did very good political work after the... Um, 32, and he also, but I would agree with Brian Farrell, that he didn't take any trouble at all to make himself into a personality. He was perhaps, as a politician, not good, but his advice was excellent. And I saw him in different areas. For example, my house was, he stayed in my house for eight months, and it was the wrong house to stay in, of course. He used to say to my wife that if he knew anywhere else to go, he wouldn't stay here at all. <laughs> He was well able, he was very humorous, but he went out like a flash when the military shouted at the door. On the other hand, I heard him at a parliamentary conference in Washington, going for a minister, a, a, a minister, a British minister, who poo-pooed the notion of neutrality. He said he should learn something about it, and a Washington paper had a, had a big, big uh, banner headline the following day, Irish General Scores British Minister. The first time I ever heard the word scores in that sense. Sorry. Uh, Lona Brain, how would you assess Dick Mulcahy's role during the crucial period leading up to the treaty. Was he a man who saw the treaty as a very desirable thing or perhaps the product of military necessity? Well, uh, it's interesting you ask me that question because the other night I was reading again Mulcahy's speech uh, in the treaty debates mm -hmm. and he struck me in that particular speech as being a real realist in the making. And his concentration upon the importance of certain things. He, he laid down, he, first of all, he had no illusions at all about the capacity to carry on the fight. I mean, there's a, a quotation, 
it's often being quoted, I can't remember what it was exactly, about uh, inability to, to take back the ports or to hold the ports or drive the British out of the ports, that all they had been able to do up to that moment was to drive the police out of a moderately sized police barracks. Fairly good sized police barracks. Fairly sized, something, something to that effect. But he, he, also, he insisted, though, in that speech upon the possibilities of the treaty. Let's say he wanted to get his hands, he said, upon the means of doing things. And I, on the blind. I think he was, above all, a realist, and he was at his greatest at the critical moments, at the moments when some people might uh, think he did hateful things. I can remember when the attempt was made to break up the doll when a deputy was shot, another deputy was wounded, a senator tried to retire, uh, a deputy sent in his resignation to the speaker who suppressed it. At that critical moment, Mulcahy proposed action which was immediately and fully successful. I went to that cabinet meeting uh, intending that certain leaders should be put before a military court I found, I was a few minutes late, I found that Mulcahy had already named four men who should be executed. I immediately thought it was both a life-saving method and one that would be more effective, and it was agreed to it. Now, he took that responsibility on him, although he was not a man of hatred nor a man of blood, but he was a supreme realist, and he saw that something drastic had had to be done to prevent demoralisation through the country. Right. In, in a way, of course, this is the realism of the surgeon, uh, and I think this comes out perhaps in a rather more positive way later on in his career. If you think of 1948, Fine weakest ever performance, they never did so badly, it would have been so easy, I think, to throw up one's hands in holy horror as a politician no. saying nothing could be done. Mulcahy was the man who said, no, we must get going. Mulcahy was the man who started the immediate talks which led to that first inter-party government. Mulcahy most of all, and I think this is perhaps the most typical feature of the man, was the one who was ready to stand down. Mm-hmm. And I think that's perhaps the most difficult thing for any politician to do, but for a man who basically is competent, who is experienced, and who knows he's a, a very good cut above a lot of the people around him. Yes, that y- willingness to yes, give way. John A. Murphy? Uh, yes, indeed. Um, and that goes <coughs> back... His uh, unselfishness in that regard, after all, goes back... Uh, some years before that, when he took over leadership of the Fine Gael party at a very low point in its fortunes after Cosgrave's resignation, uh, resignation which um, disheartened, I would say, many in the party, and yet uh, Mulcahy took over the leadership of the party when he, he hadn't even a Doyle seat, if I remember rightly. And he might well have expected uh, his leadership of the party um, when it unexpectedly revived and, and had a chance of participating in office that that his leadership might have entitled him to the highest office, and yet he made no bones whatsoever about accepting the realities there. Michael, mm. yes. there was another period when he had to face that sort of problem, namely the time of the so-called army mutiny. Now, how would you assess his role at that time? Well, because I was in the chair in the all that time. I wasn't in the government and I mm-hmm. wasn't in the army. But I happen to know a great many army officers... The, the mutiny, of course, I think uh, I think somebody described it as rather a farcical mutiny. It wasn't, I think, a genuine mutiny at all. It was the natural resentment of people who, after having served well 
in a particular situation, found they were being demobilized. But Mulcahy was in favor of discipline. And he, nobody ever, anywhere, I think, was more in favor of a parliamentary army, that is, an army subject to a parliament. Yeah, why did he take the stand and he did? He took the stand, the stand he did was, the, the, the stand he took was that mutineers must be, must be arrested. Mm. And he sent people to arrest them. And that was stopped. I, I don't know all the details of it after that, mm. but that was his view. And he came, may I say one thing that's been said about Surely. myself? I never suppressed anybody's resignation. Ernest's, Ernest's, Ernest's memory, I think, is wrong. He said that in print, but being a nice man, I didn't write to the papers to say that he was wrong. But I think he was wrong. He's also wrong in thinking that I was in any... that the president had anything to do with resignations. He had not. And may I say one more thing about oh, Mulcahy? No, the civil servant, the Englishman, who I heard him tell the story that Lone has told about the Englishman who was his boss, he offered him promotion, but would have taken him to England, and he refused it. The Englishman thought he was completely mad. He couldn't make any impression on him at all about it. To be offered promotion and to refuse it was something which was very Irish, I suppose. But he's one of the civil servants, it should be said, by the way. The movement, the Sinn Féin movement and the volunteer movement, in Dublin at any rate, was to a very great extent dependent on civil servants. Yes, there, there was misunderstanding, I suppose, about mm -hmm. the mutiny. But in any case, uh, there there was danger of a clash in the army. And uh, General Mulcahy left the cabinet meeting after some exchanges. John McNeil and I went out to Cosgrave, who was ill, to ask him uh, to require Cosgrave's, uh, Mulcahy's resignation. He had just agreed to do so when the telephone rang to say that General Mulcahy had handed in his resignation and he certainly, as appeared then and afterwards, <coughs> had no desire or no uh, inclination to tolerate a real mutiny. It's sometimes suggested, Brian Farrell, that at this period uh, that you had, in fact, a sort of a last expression of a Republican uh, separatist sort of tradition uh, coming to the surface, an IRB tradition coming to the surface. Would you think there's anything in that claim, uh, particularly in the context of Dick Mulcahy? No, I think Mulcahy represents the, the real roots of political and social modern Ireland. I think that he himself, I remember so well going, talking to him, and he leant over and he pulled down off the shelf the 1908 National Council Sinn Féin handbook. He's he very fond of this, that. If, you know, if you want to know where modern Ireland comes from, this is it. And while we've all talked about the realism of Mulcahy, it wasn't a realism, I think, that put up with things that should be changed and could be changed. You know, there was a very deep idealism there, which, whereas we think of republicanism, I think, very often in terms of a commitment to physical force, I would have thought that, that Mulcahy's republicanism was Arthur Griffith's form, if one can make that marriage, because Griffith obviously wasn't a republican, but he was a man, I think, who believed in an Irish independence. He believed in being Irish, mm -hmm. and he believed that that was something you did for yourself. You didn't do it at somebody else. Yes, you began the process in yourself. Now, this is very important, because I think, what is really the nature of his nationalism? What was the kind That's, of thing that I think what Brian Farrell has said is entirely true. Mul uh, Mulcahy benefited by one of the things which had a great influence upon Irish history. 
although no Bryn benefited by it too, that is competitive entry into the civil service. It had an immense influence upon the Sinn Féin movement. And Mulcahy, through that, came to Dublin. Collins went to London, by the same token, on the same way. And he, he was a reader of Griffith and a great admirer of Griffith. And in 1920, when the president was in America, Collins and Mulcahy and Griffith were really a triumvirate. Mm-hmm. And I would agree with entirely that he, he did not associate republicanism with fighting. As a matter of fact, what Mulcahy wanted was an Irish parliament, independent, which he thought could do a number of things that he wanted to do. I agree entirely with that. How do you feel about that, Lorne O'Brien? Well, uh, uh, when I hear people talking about republicans and republicanism, I try to understand the, this problem for myself. I always have seen republicanism in the Irish context as the desire to obtain freedom for the country. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, I, I think that Mulcahy and Collins got together very clearly on this at the time of the treaties debate when they talked in terms of a freedom to win freedom. Yeah. And I, I, think that, uh, I think we've seen, with both governments, I must say, uh, the exploitation of that ideal Mm. There, there, is, yeah. there is one point there that uh, because I was misled the first time I met Mulcahy, I was misled when he talked what about way? the National Council because it seemed to me that inevitably built into that was a criticism and a very severe criticism of a, of a resort to armed force. And I did put to him a view, which indeed I would still hold in measure, that Sean McDermott, who was a very charming and a very efficient man, was also fundamentally a conspirator. He was a man who made use of other people. Well, dear heavens above, if one ever thought that Dick Mulcahy at that stage was an old man and beyond it, one learnt very quickly not... (laughs) As a matter of fact, the importance of the IRB in affairs is greatly exaggerated. It had relatively little importance. It perhaps had cost uh, columns to operate with RUC men and, and Dublin Metropolitan Police, but its influence on people was minimal. Uh, John A. Murphy, would you agree with that view? Because Richard Mulcahy himself in his last year stressed this point that he thought the role of the IRB has been exaggerated in many accounts. How do you feel about that? Well, the evidence, I don't think we are in full possession of the facts. And as I was saying to you perhaps some time ago, that this this subject deserves to be uh, studied and, and... um, some kind of proper conclusions come up with, because we have Ernest Blyde who ha- has said now, and indeed not for the first time, that the IRB was relatively <coughs> unimportant, and yet we have people like, say, Sean McEntee on the other hand, on the other hand stressing the IRB's fundamental role in, even in, he would say, swinging the treaty. Ah, uh, well, I'm, I'm just saying that there are two views, and that um, we have, especially in the latter in, in the, the final years of the life of the IRB, we are as, as yet in no position to say, or perhaps we haven't the facts to say, um, to assess the proper role of the IRB. I would have thought that, I would have liked to have heard some elucidation of the position of the IRB in the 1924 so-called mutiny. Um, and one other point, Mr Chairman, if through you, I would like also to get either Ernest Blythe's and or Professor Hayes's impression of the relations between Mulcahy and, and O'Higgins um, at that time. 
Yes. Well, now, there are two very important points there. Ernan, would you like to come back on this thing, the role of the IRB, if any, in the 1924 situation? I I do think that the IRB had very little role. Uh, People played with it, and it was ineffective, actually, when the treaty came. IRB men had to be told that they were free to vote whatever way they liked. So that I I think that it's just because there's a little mystery attached to it that people... You think it was very important, whereas it was of some slight importance. That I think is the most. I was never. I was never in the IRB, at all. I was never asked to join, probably because I sounded like a person. I always had a sound. I sounded like a person that wouldn't join it. But my father was in it, and I knew a number of people who were in it, including a man whose brother was at the at the rescue of James Stevens from what's now Griffith Barracks, from Wellington Barracks, near which I was reared. But I think the role of the IRB was to be what Mulcahy called one time a catalyst. That's how I discovered the meaning of the word, because he used it in the doll, and I was asked to rule him out of war and didn't know what it meant. <laughs> but uh, that is to say, when anything happened, for example, the, the 98 celebrations in 1898, they helped on that. When the king or the queen, Queen Victoria, came to Dublin, the IRB went into action. But I, I, with a number of students, broke up a meeting, I remember, in the ancient concert rooms, with Ginger O'Connell was there, and Alec Maguire was just dead, and some others. But we weren't in the IRB, but I think the IRB may have been behind the idea. But when the, when the it, it was a, a minority of the Supreme Council of the IRB which ran the Rising, and for that purpose I'd apparently admired yeah. But what to do after that is not a word at all. And I don't think that any role, mm. particularly after that, because uh, the, the thing was too wide. And there were people who thought, I believe, that they could work the IRB in some way or other, which would be anti-government. But Mulcahy was adamant on that. So was Gerald O'Sullivan. So was Sean McMahon. That's well, how that was it under Parliament... That. After many years in the IRB, I drifted out of it in 1917 because I held that the rising had made it Mm. obsolete. I was sent down to preside at the county court convention of the IRB to elect somebody. After that, I took no part in it and nobody ever asked me why I wasn't bothering with it. Well, if I may just move the ground a little to another aspect of Dick Mulcahy's career. As a Minister of State, how... Did you, for example, Michael Hayes, find his quality of mind and dealing with him as a colleague in administration? Well, of course, I wasn't in administration. I, I mean, I wasn't in a minister at all after 22. Yeah. But Mulcahy's great yeah. capacity was that he found out things. I had spent my whole life in education. I thought very foolishly when I was a minister of education in 22 that it was dreadful to have to go into the chair that I would have made a marvellous minister of education. How lucky I was that I wasn't tested. But in 1948, when he became Minister of Education, he soon seemed to me to know much more about it than I did, because he went at the facts. He was a very high-minded person. He worked very hard. He understood all about it. And uh, in the Doyle, he fulfilled what I regard as the important role for a parliamentarian. Second reading speeches are easy to make. They're general terms. The test for a minister comes when he has to bring a bill through committee section by section and face other people who know something and know a good deal about it too. In that, he was excellent. Mm. No, no First brain. class. Well, 
I must say as a civil servant that uh, I, the civil service thought very highly of Mulcahy and the civil yeah. servants who worked under him. He yeah. was approachable, yeah. and that's a matter of course of first rate importance to the official. He was also a desperately hard worker, I think, yeah. Michael mentioned yeah. earlier. Yeah. And that commended him to the, the better civil servants too. Yeah. He had a passion for memoranda, reports, yeah, yeah. graphs, and all that sort of thing. In fact, at the time, many people thought he, had, he was overdoing it. Our, chairman, I'm sure, I'm our sure. chairman is suffering from well, that, as well, you know. Well, I'm not, yeah. not suffering. No, not <laughs> suffering. I would say that the archivists and the Mr. Historians are now very pleased yes, that yes, he yes, 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 well. so well. Confess that a few of his colleagues were a little impatient with the amount of memorandum <laughs> that he produced. Well, <laughs> I, I served once as, as secretary of a committee of which uh, Mulcahy was chairman. And when it came to writing the report, which we did together, I remember being greatly impressed by his, his, the clarity of his mind and his capacity to put his thoughts down yeah. on paper. Yeah. I think he was much better doing that than making speeches. He, I think his delivery was very often hampered by a certain rigidity. Yeah. But when anything he wrote, I think he wrote very well. Brian Farrell. I was going to ask this because it seemed to me that as a speaker and reading his speeches, and this is particularly true for the Dahl speeches, uh, I think he would come across as a very disappointing man. And I think partly this was a, a conflict that he... I think he was a complex man. I think he had a complex mind. He had a great capacity to cope with a large number of details, be conscious of a large number of details. But he also, because of this very strong realism, there was this desire to make a main point. I think in speech it often didn't come off. I yes, think yes. sometimes the syntax yes, what, tripped what him he, up. What he had, had to say was more important than the manner of saying. Right. His, speeches, his speeches were too long on occasions. But in committee he was admirable and he was very approachable and he gave, gave way to some extent. But in making set speeches he was on occasion too long. On the other hand, I heard him during the Civil War in the Doyle in uniform. He was a complete example of the soldier who was inclined to obey a parliament. And he gave some extremely lucid and very brief, very brief and very telling answers. Well, what of his attitude, Ernan de Blyde, to the Irish language? Did he approach that in a realistic way or uh, was he again... Uh, uh, the person has a very accepted. No, no, as far as I could see, he approached it in a very realistic way, gave a great deal of thought to it, and produced, a, got a lot of things going. For instance, uh, School Widow here in Dublin, and I, I could, if I had time, I could mention a dozen things that he did that he definitely personally got going. Yes, and that's the, true, yes. Mm. Kevin, can I come in here? Yes, John. On this point, um, I think this is one of the most important things he achieved. Um, by being a well-known revivalist and being dedicated to the revival throughout his entire life, he did. Um, he helped indeed to to salvage his party's reputation in this respect. What I have in mind is that whether they liked it or not, <clears throat> Common Gael after twenty-two and Fine Gael uh, since nineteen thirty-three. Uh, in one of the reasons I think for their lack of popular success was their association <coughs> in the nationalist mind with the West British image. Uh, there are various reasons for this into which we needn't go. Nevertheless, throughout that period, Mulcahy always held the great respect of his political opponents. And um, it is on record in the Doyle debates indeed, when he was given what FS Alliance calls the somewhat improbable role of Minister for Education, though indeed not any more improbable than, say, Sean Moylan, who was equally good at it. When he was given this role, um, 
Fianna Fáil speakers expressed their relief that uh, a man like Mulcahy had been given the uh, Ministry of Education. They felt that the language revival, which was on under some criticism, indeed, in the period before that, was safe in his hands. So I think, um, irrespective of his work for the language movement and so on, I think he did Fine Gael a very good turn by being known to be a pro-Irish language. Thanks, Could John. I make a comment on yes, that, Yes, a sir? brief comment. I yes. don't believe that Dick Mulcahy got a single vote from anybody who was anti-treaty because he knew Irish and advocated Irish. I'm not saying I'm that. I'm perfectly certain that he did not. Um, not neither would I, for example. <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the gallery, in the doll, my wife on one occasion was sitting beside a priest who, when I spoke Irish in the chair, said, does this fella in the chair know Irish? Brian Farrell. I feel that, in a way, it's very difficult to talk, talk about a man newly dead. It's very easy, perhaps, that we, we turn him into a hero. But on a personal point, I belong to the youngest generation of all the people participating in this programme. I think some of us had the advantage. I had a particular advantage because I went to Kaloshtura and I was conscious of Mulcahy's involvement in Irish. I think one thing that we do have to recover is a sense that it's not just the dead heroes, I mean the men who died 50 years ago, that we have to learn to know about and respect, but the men who lived on for 50 years and did the job and performed a service, like Dick Mulcahy. Exactly. Well, I think we have looked at the career of Dick Mulcahy over a long period of time from, you could say, the beginning of the volunteers right down to the present time. I got to know him personally um, quite late in his life and one of the things that struck me about him was, first of all, the discipline of mind, the very great sense of simplicity and honesty, his devotion I think, to his country rather than to personal aggrandizement, uh, which is perhaps a refreshing aspect in a modern politician. Again, something struck me was his deep religious sense. And this is an aspect of the man, I think, which should not be forgotten. He had a, a very constant sense of a religious presence, and I think it was a very important factor in his life. But for me as an historian, I found probably the most refreshing thing about him was his very great sense of history. Not merely in the sense of his own personal role in the making of modern Ireland, but of the necessity, for example, of gathering together the sources for the history of our modern Irish state. And Dick Mulcahy made a very practical contribution, and it was a very important one for a man, an old man, who had treasured his own papers very, very deeply. In that he, in that he um, gave his papers to the National University of Ireland, University College Dublin, to set a headline, to set a headline uh, for other people who had lived through this period. And one would hope that other statesmen and other politicians will follow the headline set uh, by uh, Dick Mulcahy in this matter. And again. I think the best tribute to his memory is that Ireland has remained, despite all the strains, a parliamentary state, and we must be grateful to that. Good night.